This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. The highly controversial Tokyo Olympic Games finished a few weeks ago, and many debates have been held on whether those games were a success or a disaster, and importantly, for whom. The games were exceptional due to the pandemic, but on the other hand, they were similar to previous games in many ways, such as by far exceeding their budget and involving many serious human rights issues that are rarely mentioned in the official Olympic narratives. In today's episode, we focus on the silenced, dark side of the Olympics and the impact of the Games on local communities, and ask whether Olympics is doing more harm than good, especially for the world's most vulnerable populations. I'm delighted to be talking to two researchers who are currently working with some of these questions. Dr. Michael McDougall is an assistant professor of psychology at Keystone College, specializing in culture, sport, and organizations. And Dr. Mark Ross is an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western University in London, Ontario, where he teaches history, sociology, and management of sport. So welcome to the podcast, Michael and Mark, and thanks for the, taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely, Nura. Glad to be here. Yeah, I was really delighted you both find the time to do this. And I think this episode today is quite, um, as we mentioned before, that these are some of the questions that are really not so often talked about when we think of the Olympics and we think of sport. And I was just this week listening to a lecture which was about the public image of sport and what people think about sport in Switzerland uh, since I've just moved here. And it was 90-something percent of people who think that sport is, you know, a great thing for people and the society. And so many of these things that we talk about today are something that, like, loads of people are not even aware of. And so before we get to talking about those possible dark sides, a few weeks ago I had a nice discussion on skateboarding in the Olympics in this podcast And I know that you have, Mac, also written about uh, skateboarding in the Olympics. You had an article in the conversation, in the conversation yeah. not like a long time ago. So maybe just reflect a bit on how did all of this go? So we had skateboarding in the Olympics for the first time ever. Loads of controversy, loads of divided opinions, whether it's a good thing or not. So maybe just reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, so the piece was actually just just kind of reflecting on... Um, who the incorporation of skateboarding into the Olympics really served? Who was it for? Um, did they really consult with the skateboarders at all uh, before they the IOC, that is, picked up the sport and kind of put it in? 
and that that led to a lot of conversations about what skateboarding means to different mm -hmm. people and and there seemed to be a generational divide kind of the first wave of skateboarders really viewed it as an art form uh, something that was very personal to them and very fluid whereas the the newer generation the folks who came up in skateboarding with with events like the X Games and the Dew Tour and things like that, they they definitely had more of a sporting view of the activity uh, and were more excited about the Olympics than the other folks. What I found most interesting, I think, was once the article was posted, um, it really provoked strong feelings amongst different, I guess I would say, constituents of people. Um, some people, you know, said as a, a person growing up, a person of color, um, skateboarding was one of the only opportunities I had to express myself through um, physical activity. Um, there were very few barriers to where I could skate, things like that. But then there was another group of people, kind of what I would call the traditionalist group of uh, Olympic supporters, who would say things like, well, skateboarding is an abomination for the Olympics. It should not be there. It's not a sport. It's a nuisance, some of them would say. And that really blew me away because the example I always use is, well, you know, the, the Olympics want to be inclusive, or at least they say they want to be. Mm -hmm. they, they want to, um, you know, encompass as many different experiences and people as they can. Uh, but yet sports like dressage, so horse dancing, uh, is still in the Olympic Games, even though a very small fraction of, uh, you know, Olympic uh, or National Olympic Committees actually have dressage teams. Whereas I think skateboarding is something that is really spread all over the globe now. I mean, you see sport for development and peace initiatives in the Middle East using skateboarding because of its popularity there. Um, obviously Japan did very well in the Olympic skateboarding. Latin America has always had um, a lot of really talented skateboarders. So, you know, the, the argument that somehow skateboarding is a, an abomination and doesn't belong beside the other sports because of some kind of, you know, they couldn't put their finger on it, why it, why it was wrong for it to be there, just they just knew it was wrong. <laughs> um <laughs> So while other sports that are very exclusive have a very high barrier to entry in terms of, you know, you need a horse, you need someone to train you to train the horse to dance. And, and all that is very expensive and very few people, um, especially, you know, below the middle class have access to dancing horses. So I thought that was the most interesting takeaway um, that, you know, the inclusivity of skateboarding was somehow problematic to the Olympic Games. Yeah. So what does it tell about the Olympics more broadly? I think we can maybe talk about that a little bit. I think the Olympics are really trying to make an effort um, to... Well, there, there's obviously... You'd like to think there's a altruistic reason that they're embracing new sports and things like that. But I think um, while some of the IOC members probably feel that way, uh, I think first and foremost, it's it's about money and putting in sports that people will watch, sports that are good for television as well, because the television uh, broadcasting rights are so important to the IOC. 
so before television, it didn't really matter if a sport translated well to a tiny screen in someone's house. So now it, that, that really is one of the most important considerations um, that there is in terms of selling sports through the Olympic Games. Um, and that's something that ESPN through the X Games and other events showed that uh, skateboarding, um, BMX, uh, all those sorts of sports can really uh, do very well that way. Um, whereas, you know, baseball can take a long time to play. So we saw baseball is already out. <laughs> it was welcomed back in and it's already been um, welcomed back out the door. Um, so they can be very fickle when it comes to what sports are going to get to stay, what sports are going to go, what sports are going to be the newest addition. So breakdancing is coming up, which should translate really well to television um, and actually be a relatively inclusive um, activity. Uh, but then the debate will come up inevitably among breakdancers. You know, is this a sport? Should this be a competition? Does everything we do have to be a competition? Um, because it certainly seems that way, uh, particularly over here in North America, it seems like there's a competition for every single thing in life, whether that's eating hot dogs or, you know, skateboarding, everything becomes measurable. Um, and a lot of people say that doesn't have to be the way it is. There's a lot of pushback in physical uh, education departments about, meaningful sport and meaningful physical activity and maybe team sports competitive sports aren't what's most important maybe more recreation oriented activities are what we should be focusing on and maybe that would attract more people at a younger age uh, to physical activity and let them find joy in it rather than you know the hyper competitive space of sport yeah and um, I would just like to add to that that the IOC as an organisation, are also perhaps in the same sort of process of going through this type of external adaption, internal integration problem, uh, responding strategically to opportunities and markets, such as bringing sports with you know high viewership and youth participation under their Olympic umbrella, uh, to reposition, to stay relevant with a different and ever-changing generation of viewers. And again, I'm, I'm just really fascinated to see whether that will change them at all internally in any sort of fundamental way as some of these lifestyle sports uh, with their own you know, forms of resistances uh, and whether they strive to keep their own systems of meaning intact and how the IOC will then respond, manoeuvre, um, look to control them or engineer values to retain and preserve what is uh, been historically important to them, which often ultimately seems to be um, quite a profit-driven, profit elitist, um, fairly undemocratic mantra and core. So yeah, just fascinated to see how this will play out and the tactics that the different groups involved will employ you know, as, as they're both in the process of change and trying to hold on to what matters to them. Mm -hmm. And I think Mark mentioned about this, what is meaningful in physical education or physical activity and how everything has to be made to a competition and the Olympics is obviously, a, I mean, skateboarding, not many people wouldn't see competition as something that is like <laughs> essential to skateboarding. It's something that you go out and you do 
that by yourself and not measuring everything and so on. So I guess when we are, and Michael, the two of us have often talked about this management of meaning and how, you know, I think for the Olympics, they have to be managing the meanings of those activities that are taken in to a specific direction so that they can fit that Olympic narrative. And so I guess that's inevitably a big negotiation that has to take place when different activities, whether it's surfing, skateboarding, parkour, Thai boxing, all these other new things that are coming in. So this negotiation is something uh, that has to take place in terms of the meaning of those activities and whose meaning counts. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so so like I say, I, I really have very little knowledge of skateboarding. You know, like, I think I had a skateboard when I was 10 um, and, and that was it. But uh, obviously I read Mac's article in the conversation and I listened to the first half of your podcast um, on skateboarding. And it was so striking the tensions between those two different systems of meaning, you know, the Olympics on one hand, which seems to stand for standardization and nationalism and regulation um, of a sport. On the other hand, a sport which has traditionally been about, you know, skating on the road and uh, making your own meaning and, and, you know, making the, an urban space uh, yours as opposed to the sanitized skate parks that were described in the Olympics. So very little knowledge of the sports, but incredibly interested to see how those tensions and that dialectic sort of plays out. Um, because, you know, it's, it's, it was incredible to listen to the podcast. And I think one of the guests, I'm not sure which one, was talking about skateboarding, not just being rebellious uh, or about being a counterculture or illegal, but I think he described it as like a magical shaman-like role which injected a certain magic into the banality of urban environments. And it sounded a lot like, you know, some of the stuff that Senior was speaking about when she was talking about parkour um, and just that management of meaning and, and the power of an organisation and a competition like the Olympics to be able to try and regulate and bring that those other meanings within its control, you know, and, and whether they'll be able to do that, it's I'm going to be very interested um, to watch in the the coming years. You know, you know as, as you know, like most of my work really sort of takes place with organisations now, and um, and it reminded me a little bit. There's a problem organisations face um, called it's a problem of external adaption and internal integration and so as organizations move forward into uncertain futures they have to adapt and change and respond to opportunities out there in the world to stay successful to stay relevant to survive um, so that's the external adaption but as they do so they're facing the dual challenge of trying to hold together some sort of core of who they are you know like maintain and preserve you know what they perceive to be their culture or their systems and meaning and as those two clash the problem of uh, adapting with keeping internally integrated there's often a feeling that that dialectic is quite literally pulling the group apart so you know when I was reading Mac's article and it was really clear that different skateboarders had attached different meanings to what was going on already some seemed quite nostalgic about um, a present which already seemed to be disappearing out of sight 
within their own lifetime and they were reflective and there seemed to be like an element of regret at what skateboarding is becoming through joining with the Olympics. And then the others seemed much more pragmatic. So so even within, you know, one group who may be a Titan, as one of the guests on the, the podcast described, and may be able to resist somehow this Olympic type hegemony, you know, there wasn't a unified system of meaning. There's clearly people who attach different meanings to it. So skateboarding itself isn't monolithic. Um, so I guess as a to sum up, as an outside observer, I'm incredibly interested to see what happens in the, the coming years with this. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to continue on some of those things, Mark? Uh, just the the idea that, you know, the IOC uh, is changing in various ways and, and trying to adapt uh, and survive, uh, partly because of, you know, collapsing uh, youth interest in the games. Uh, but one thing that doesn't seem to be happening, um, there doesn't seem to be a large, you know, groundswell of criticism about what the games do to host cities when they show up. I mean, there's Jules Boykoff. Um, Helen Lenski, there's a few scholars who write about it. There is the No Olympics movement, but it's not like a huge group of people saying that human rights matter and, and should be obviously more important than just a sporting competition. You know, people standing up and saying, we're not going to watch this if people lose their houses or if you award the hosting rights to a genocidal regime. That doesn't seem to be getting much traction and I'm really baffled as to why that is, because this generation, um, or not, not generation, but the time we live in now, seems to be more aware of those sorts of issues than ever before, partially, you know, because of social media and how connected we are all around the world. But it doesn't seem to be um, a priority for people. When you bring it up to people in conversation, they they're almost dismissive of it. It's, you know, almost like a, a hassle that they have to think about the fact that the Olympics are causing harm to people and not just, you know, providing a platform for internationalism, as de Coubertin would say. Yeah, that that's what immediately jumps to mind. Maybe I'm a bit too jaded. <laughs> um, that That's immediately where my mind goes when talking about the external forces on the IOC and the Olympics. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I don't understand what the holdup is. I mean, the IOC did seem to react for a little while where they were going to put together a, a human rights committee. I don't think that committee has actually got off the ground yet. Um, there was a report done for them that obviously said there are serious human rights concerns associated with the Olympic Games. And then it just, it just hasn't got going, even though, you know, the Tokyo Games had numerous human rights issues. Um, Beijing 2022 will have numerous human rights issues. LA, Paris, all of them. And, and we're still just kind of stuck in limbo. Mm -hmm. Yes, let's start talking about those human rights issues in a second. And just like you said, that's something that obviously has been a big issue that hasn't been properly acknowledged in not just in the last games but in many of the games and especially the forthcoming uh, Beijing is highly controversial as well so just before we get into that let's just talk quickly about 
the last Olympics in Tokyo under the COVID pandemic. So, because Mark, you've been very productive. You have another little piece in the conversation, which is about the health risks of going ahead and having those Olympics, despite the pandemic is clearly not over. We are still living in the middle of this. So maybe just a few thoughts on that, and then we move to a more general discussion after that. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting this time around to see how uh, the World Health Organization played into preparations for the Olympics. They've always been involved since about the 1980s, uh, providing guidance and recommendations to the IOC. Um, and they, they did a really great job, um, actually in, uh, Rio for 2016, where they, they were far more optimistic than the general consensus about the Zika virus and its ability to be, uh, you know, to spread throughout, uh, Olympic visitors. Um, and then no Olympic visitors at the, at least we don't know about the host population, but Olympic visitors didn't seem to actually get Zika and spread it around. So they, they have some credibility when it comes to this, um, but they do have a very deeply entrenched relationship with the IOC. They're very close with the IOC. They have memorandums of understanding uh, to work together towards uh, physical activity, improvement around the world, uh, mental health initiatives, which is kind of, kind of contradictory because the IOC does so much damage to certain people's mental health. Um, but then then when we come up to Tokyo, all of a sudden the World Health Organization seemed to be making exceptions for the IOC and for the Olympics, which didn't make a lot of sense. And now that we're a bit removed from the Tokyo Olympics, it, it does seem like quite a few people who were at those games did contract COVID-19 and have since gone back to to where they're from, uh, whether that's in in Japan or elsewhere. Um, so it is a problem, um, and it was it was a it wasn't a super spreader event, I wouldn't say, but it was it was, it did feel reckless at the time, and now in hindsight, it, it feels even more so. I think so. The 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 support the WHO l- kind of lent to the IOC. Uh, to host these games during a pandemic really served to legitimize what they were doing. Um, and it seemed inconsistent with everything else that was going on. Um, you know, the Japanese government was basically telling foreign nationals that you can't come into the country um, because we have a, you know, a pandemic crisis, a state of emergency in Tokyo. Um, yet the the Olympic Games were held at the same time, which obviously did just that. So... It caused a lot of confusion, I think. Um, I know a lot of physicians and nurses um, organizations spoke up and said, look, this is a really bad idea. If nothing else, it distracts from a crisis, a public health crisis that's unfolding here in Japan and maybe giving, uh, you know, a false sense of security to people um, at a time when really caution should be the primary concern. But I guess on a grander scale, to me, it signaled that the IOC will not cancel an Olympic Games um, for a pandemic. Um, Really, in the past, the only reason they've ever canceled a Games uh, is for a world war. So uh, I don't know what it'll take now, which is really scary because, you know, particularly in 
in in the uh, People's Republic of China right now, there are several issues, particularly the treatment of Uyghurs, Tibetans, and pro-democracy advocates uh, that really should make the IOC pause uh, and take note and maybe consider moving the games or canceling the games. But now that we've seen the way they react to a, a uh, global pandemic like this, it seems unlikely that they'll do very much. Mm-hmm. I think just, just to follow up from Mac is it also seems unlikely that, that people will do very much. Um, you know, you know, I don't think we have to be doctors to understand that holding um, a mega event, the largest mega event in sport during a pandemic, um, isn't a particularly good idea. You know, there was there were surveys, I think, in May, which showed as much as 80% of the Japanese respondents stated that they didn't want the Olympics over the summer, and it went ahead anyway. Now, outside of Japan, and I'm thinking... Uh, mainly where I'm living in the US, I'm thinking of my, um, I guess, the circles of community in academia. I heard very little uh, from any of the sports psychology or coaching or athlete communities about um, any sort of hesitancy about going to Tokyo. I heard calls uh, around athlete mental health and to have athlete-centred games. But I didn't hear anyone talking about citizen-centred games. Um, and I think that's, you know, quite telling. Um, a few weeks ago, you had Ross Wadey on your podcast, you know, maybe a couple of months back. And I thought he was so articulately calling for a greater focus from the sports psychology community uh, on the social-cultural realm. And, and I really support that. Um, but what I think that also means is that we don't just move into the social-culture sphere with a view of taking back concepts that we can use within the confines of our discipline. You know, I think it sort of means that we go into these worlds uh, to be a part of them. And I, I didn't really hear any of that from our communities, Nora. And I'm certainly not trying to tell anyone off or beat anyone over the head, but, but I was just quite surprised by that level of silence. Um, and whether that speaks to our tendency as a discipline to just in- instrumentalize everything and think within these performance narratives as opposed to broader social cultural discourse uh, and stay in our lo- lanes, well, I'm, I'm not sure. And you know, clearly, sports psychology isn't monolithic, but I didn't hear anyone question whether we should even really be in Tokyo. Now, in terms of the decision making, um. Clearly, most sports psychologists and athletes aren't really responsible uh, for nations going there and teams going there. In general, they're not the decision makers. They're parts of um, teams who are parts of larger systems, systems within systems, really, and not just sports systems, but political systems and national systems of governance. Um, So, you know, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying they're complicit, but I don't really think that they're absolved either. You know, we see on Twitter when you have a, an athlete, Marcus Rashford, for example, um, whenever he does anything remotely good or outside of um, his expected role as an athlete, there's a slew of tweets from the public telling the athlete to stay in their lane, to stick to play in their sport. Now, I don't think any academic who works in sport would support those types of tweets. I think rather they would say that people, uh, these athletes are people as well as as athletes. They're members of society, their views are valid, and actually it's really important and powerful that they speak up. 
well, if that's the case, then, you know, then I don't think I can judge this sort of silent, apparent, apolitical approach, if such a thing even exists, in, um, in a way which just lets people off the hook. Because at the end of the day, what's happened is a bunch of people have went to a place where a bunch of other people live who didn't want those people to come. And then those people ended up like happens at every other Olympics doing a bunch of damage, leaving the locals to clean up the mess, whether that's a health crisis, whether it's footing the massive bills which come with any Olympics. Um, now, there are real colonial undertones to that, you know, real colonial undertones to that. And, it, you know, this is a podcast about meanings and what's meaningful to people. And if we start talking about this in those terms for a second, it just seems that a lot of our sport communities uh, not only don't take a critical approach to, to this, but, but they've got quite a transactional approach to meaning in general. So it's, it's almost like a business-like exchange. And I know, of course, that there's other meanings which are quite pure and good and they're representing families and nations and trying to make people proud. And the Olympics certainly gave people viewership at home, like something to be distracted by and, and to really enjoy in tough times. And I understand all of that. But, but, it's, but it's still quite transactional. You know, they came, they got what they came for, an experience, a medal, recognition. Uh, but it's, it's still very in and out. It's still very short term. And, and that's very different from having a more relational approach, uh, which would be characterised not by short termism and an imbalance of outcomes, but by a much longer term orientation. So a much deeper value and consideration of what participation here in this precise place means to the people who live here um, and that were here before we came to compete. And it would mean being cognizant of and not ignorant of the impact that we have. Um, and I'm saying we, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but, but we no. broadly as a society, mm-hmm. and which means to focus on things like trust and commitment and decency and some sort of indication that we understand the interdependency of what is going on, that by going there, other people are perhaps suffering in the process. And and I just, I guess I just can't get my head around uh, how silent uh, our communities have been. It's, it's maybe a little bit different for Mac. You know, he, he works in a more sociological sphere and with historians and, and some different critical scholars. Well, I was just going to say that it really, it really hasn't been that different. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe because I found, so I started off my career as a historian, a critical historian kind of rooted in scholars like Raymond Williams and Antonio Gramsci. Um, I noticed right away there wasn't a whole lot of appetite within the sports history sphere for critical takes on sport at all. It was very much about, you know, sport is good. Here's how sports evolved over time. And here's how sport has served society. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's because of that. I I mean, you know, um, Michael says, you know, he, he wouldn't go so far as to say that the sports psychology discipline has been complicit Um, and what's gone on with the Olympics through their silence, uh, I wouldn't be so friendly to sport history. I would say they absolutely are complicit. Um, And sometimes, you know, when you you do push and you do try to make change and try to think critically and pose different viewpoints, they can be treated with outright hostility. And it really discourages people from doing that. 
and, and ultimately people, you know, I've had a re- relatively easy because I come from a very privileged position. I mean, I'm, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm male. I speak fluid English. I, you know, it, it's, if there's any, I've had every opportunity um, in terms of the social uh, lottery to be able to say stuff and it, it they, they shut me down. So if that's the case, how are more marginalized voices supposed to make their way into the sports history narrative? How are folks who feel wronged or feel excluded from the current sports landscape, whether that's the Olympics or something more local, how are they supposed to feel comfortable coming to the table at these big national and international conferences and saying that sport history is still a profession completely dominated by male voices, white voices. Uh, there's some incredible professors um, who are making uh, inroads like uh, Lewis Moore uh, down in the United States, for example, who, who just published a couple of years ago a book called uh, I Fight for a Living. It's all about black manhood um, and sport and prize fighting. Um, that's my other interest is prize fighting. Uh, so it's a little bit disjointed. <laughs> that, that's that's sort of how we bonded, wasn't it, Mac? Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I think talking about Sugar Ray Robinson or something. Right. Yeah, so it's you know when and, and there's a lot of kind of one-off things like they'll create scholarships or um, little you know awards that are supposed to signify um, that you know the organization is diverse and welcoming of different voices. But once those are set up, they just, they fade away. You know, the committees yeah. are disbanded. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel like they've achieved diversity in some way uh, when not realizing that it has to be a commitment over the long haul. Yeah. And it gets really frustrating. So when it comes to the Olympics, I feel like it, it's the same thing over and over again. So when I'm speaking out uh, both the Olympics and being critical of the Olympics, there's five other people. Uh, in sport history, um, not so much in sports sociology. There's some very good critical thinkers in sports sociology. Um, but in sport history, particularly, there's, you know, five people lined up ready to say you're absolutely wrong. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, you clearly don't know anything about the history of the Olympics, things like that. So to the point where we've seen people actually leaving Facebook pages and, and things like that because they're they're fed up with being... Um, you know, attacked every time they post something. Yeah. So, I mean, what I take from this conversation, so if we think of that sports psychology discipline that Mike started from, and I think it's quite clear that mental health has been like a key theme of these Olympics with all the publicity and athletes talking about their problems or challenges openly. And in Twitter, there was this discussion. I can't remember who started that, but whether sports psychology has been a part of the problem with all these performance discourses and, you know, creating this winning at all cost culture and, and that discussion about the responsibility of, you know, sports psychologists and what kind of knowledge we are producing as a discipline and what's the consequence on athletes' well-being. So that is a discussion that is being held But this question that you asked, Mike, whether we should be going there at all, if we talk about that sporting community and what what are the implications for local people that, you know, the Olympics come there and there's a big mess and that's left behind and that's it. So this is a discussion that hasn't been really held. 
Well, well, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and I certainly don't have. You know, I certainly have no answers. You know, as as, as Mac sort of mentioned, there's people who have been doing this scholarship, and and not just scholarship, but like real on the ground activism and trying to do things and make things happen. Yes, and there's been people involved in that for decades, and and as I certainly, you know, I'm I'm just at the start of trying to unpick this a little bit from. Um, I guess my sports psychology, psychology grounding. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as, as we sort of think about that, I mean, we're all on Twitter and there must have been like a, a public piece every two or three days during the Olympics pointing out some of these darker aspects um, of the Olympic Games mm-hmm. and just, just no real sort of traction within our communities. Um, I mean, now, I, I guess I don't know what goes on offline. Maybe people are having conversations, um, you know, in in the real world and offline. I, I really don't know, but certainly my sort of sense of it is that it just hasn't really came into our our um, sphere of awareness in the sense that we're sort of taking it seriously as a, a discussion point. And I think is you know is is critic probably what I think critical scholars want a lot of the time is just for people to not automatically settle into the the intellectual default positions which are typically in sport that sport is automatically and inherently good um now i I think sport is capable of being absolutely beautiful and uh for all kinds of reasons so the flip side of that is is just because you critique doesn't mean that you can't appreciate sport and Mm -hmm. what the olympics can give uh, especially in a time like this when it's been a really hard couple of years for people but the imbalance of the discussion is just absolutely mind-blowing to me so so that's i guess something that mac and i from our own respective disciplines are trying to pick away at a little bit and are probably just very much at the start although mac is like much further along the road than than me in terms of his grounding in this but uh, but yeah that that's just a little follow-up from that comment yeah excellent and time is running so for i think we've had a really good discussion around some of the issues that you are working with and Max started talking a little bit about the impact on on local communities and displacement of of people and so this is something that you are working on and we will discuss that in detail in the second part of our talk but let's finish up for now so thank you so much uh, for the conversation so far thank you very much thank you Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.